0: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
1: Hello. Hello. Do you know, at, at different stages of my life, friends would get in touch with me and maybe say, Oh, I heard you talking about such-and-such such on the radio. It was really funny. Or I enjoyed the interview you did with such-and-such such a person. Or I saw you on TV the other night. That was at one stage of my life. At this stage, all I ever get is people texting me and saying, oh, can you uh, can you tell Ed that I saw him or on, on this thing or I read this thing he wrote and just, just tell him how good it was? Oh, that's
2: so nice.
1: Well, it's nice for you, Um I'm referring to a friend of mine an old friend of mine who works in the wedding industry she's a wedding celebrant told me that your article in the Guardian about viable jobs meant a lot to her it meant a lot to her
2: oh that's so kind of her that
1: you mentioned the uh, the wedding industry in there well
2: I do think it's quite terrible this sort of uh, writing off lots of businesses and you know Businesses and jobs and people who kind of love what they do, and it's obviously true of the kind of the arts, community, weddings, events, and others. So, um, well, that is incredibly, that is incredibly nice of you. I think I think we should draw attention to the fact that we are for today, Jeff.
1: Yes. Uh, so, so usually uh, when we're doing this, Joel sits in on the Zoom calls and monitors us, um, makes notes of things that need editing out. Through fear of preserving Ed's public image. But um but but today we've we've been monitored doubly. Zoe is on here as well, Zoe Gelber, who works on the programme. Yes, and does our a brilliant newsletter and has been doing research for the programme, so it's incredibly nice. I hope Zoe's enjoying you staring at yourself in the zoom camera and fixing your hair. Thank you for drawing attention to that. <laughs> it was quite dramatic on one hand, you're talking about how nice it is to have Zoe here. On the other oh hand, you're Oh god, just, you're just such a fixing your fringe. Actually. I mean, I do want to say thank
2: you very much for the Opal Fruits, which I'm very much enjoying, because after our discussion of Opal Fruits last week, you've now you sent me two... I mean, I'm quite... I was impressed, and my children were impressed, but it
1: said limited edition. Yeah. So, of course, they've been starburst for probably a couple of decades at this point. Which so, is, how did you get them? Well, as we were talking, I googled Opal Fruits, and it turned out they'd done this limited edition. Um, earlier this year because the flavours are slightly different Wow, in what way? So in Starburst I think the lime and the lemon is combined, whereas in opal fruits you would have a separate lime and a separate lemon Definitely. I don't approve of the lime and the lemon being,
2: being combined. No. I mean, to be honest, you know, it's so interesting because maybe this
1: is the auto suggestion of the slogan, but my mouth is watering as we speak. Well, well, as we were talking about them last week and I Googled it, I, I saw that they'd done this limited edition and, and there were only two bags left online to be bought so i thought i've got to buy those and send them to ed before one of our listeners snaps them i think i should preserve one of them and maybe then sort of auction them off in 20
2: years time i mean the uh but but what is it about opal fruits that makes your mouth
1: water i think it's just that you're highly suggestible and the advert (laughs) said opal fruits made to make your mouth water and it's having this pavlovian effect on you i mean this sounds like a desperate bid for sponsorship by opal
2: fruits doesn't it (laughs) But I mean, given that they don't, I you anymore. It is, I promise you, it is not. <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, so I mean, I, I'm really. Um, I was. I thought it was. I was incredibly touched. Oh, I'm ple- pleased you enjoyed them.
1: Incredibly touched. So, how's your week been? I went on. Um, I, I did that government website questionnaire on what I could retrain as. Oh yeah. I was thinking it would give me a wealth of options, but the only thing that came up was um, sexual health advisor. What? I know. I mean I want to be careful here but what gives
2: you the qualifications to be a sexual health advisor?
1: Well I'll be honest there were no questions particularly (laughs) pertaining to sexual health and I I wouldn't have pegged myself as somebody who had any great expertise in that area. I'm not sort of leading in any direction here but I just sort of wonder what I've I've no idea. The questions were all things like, do do you like seeing a task through to its completion? And uh, do do you enjoy collaborating with other people? And, And that's what it spewed out for me. I mean, I'm slightly wondering whether I should do it, but I'm slightly fearful of what the result might be. I could see you as a private detective. There hasn't been a private detective like you before. They're all sort of quite dark and introspective and dealing with all these personal problems. Like a a jolly, slightly nerdy private detective. There's a niche that nobody's exploited yet. Do you think I'd be successful? I think so. You've got an inquiring mind. Mm. Which which TV detective do you most closely relate to? Miss Marple.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we did try and get our kids to watch a film called Clue, which was based on the. But you know, Cluedo, yeah, it's, it's it
1: one of Sarah's favourite films. That she loves it. Didn't quite work with the children somehow. Maybe in lieu of being able to do a Reasons to Be Cheerful live show, we could do a big Zoom game of Cluedo at some point. Ooh. But you you think even more
2: interesting than a Zoom game of class struggle?
1: <laughs> is that still in the British Museum? I don't know, actually. <laughs> I've lost track of it. Should we talk about what we're talking on the show? Yes. Um
2: so this week we're having a couple of great conversations which I are sort of related to the US election, which is obviously in lots of people's minds. First, we're really excited to be talking to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who represents Minnesota in the House of Representatives. She was one of the first two Muslim women elected to Congress in 2018 and is part of the squad of four young progressive Democrats alongside Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley and Rashida Tlaib. And she's just written a book, This is What America Looks Like, about her early life in Somalia, where she lived before fleeing during the Civil War and her journey into politics. And we had a really interesting conversation with her, you and I, about her life, her politics uh, and the crises facing the U.S. today. And then we've got a great conversation with a young activist, Will Lawrence, uh, who's involved in the Sunrise Movement. That's a a big part of the recent wave of youth-led climate activism in the U.S. And they've been championing the Green New Deal for the past few years. We're talking to Will about how the Sunrise Movement are organising in the election and what's at stake in November. And you know there is a lot to be worried about in the world today um and indeed in u s politics this is such an important moment but I, I I think that both of these conversations are are good grounds for hope what's uh, what's your reason to be cheerful this week? Well, my reason to be cheerful i mean it's quite sort of self referential this really um but you know I've gone on this sort of swimming in the ponds thing well i i i mean this is a sort of boast really, but I did four laps today and it was only thirteen degrees. Whoa! Have you ordered your wetsuit yet? I have ordered the wetsuit. There will not be pictures available to you. Um, it will, or if there are, they'll go in the vault along with the trampoline video and the Icelandic thermal baths. But um, <laughs> I, I have to say, the sort of putting on of the wetsuit is quite a business. I haven't quite got
1: the hang of that yet. Lots of talcum powder, chafing. Yes. So, did you just do it in your very small speedos? I did. Yeah. <laughs> um. What about you? Anything to report? Any any reason to be cheerful? I mean, not, not just a little one, just a little one. My son, who has started primary school, he's in reception, uh, got picked to be the star helper the other day. Oh, yeah, he got selected. It's very competitive. They choose a different star helper every day, and 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 last Wednesday he was chosen. The criteria for being chosen uh, was was largely to do with sitting up straight on the carpet. I think he managed that with plum and then he got to stand at the front and help so i'm very proud of him i've had no actual achievements or joy in my own life this week but i'm able to have that vicariously through him oh that's great it's good isn't it yeah yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a he's he's really going places i mean let me just say to you i think of you as a star helper every week jeff <laughs> i'll change my linkedin
2: profile
0: reasons to be cheerful with ed milliband and jeff lloyd
2: So I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Ilhan Omar, Congresswoman for Minnesota's Fifth District and author of This Is What America Looks Like. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
2: Maybe we can just start because we were just talking about it before the tape went on. How's lockdown been for you? You're running for re-election during lockdown. Uh, you've won your primary. You're now running in the general election. You've got your family at home. How, how's that been? It's a lot. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, you know, I have um, four, four children. Um, three are in high school and one is in elementary. And so uh, to... To navigate um, what what it now means to to help teach children uh, while you're working full time um, and running for reelection has been interesting. Yeah. You know, I think the the pandemic has um, done a lot of things, but what it's done is that it's it's taught us how to be flexible and creative. So,
2: yeah, well, that's that's definitely true. Your book is a fascinating account of your journey from Somalia as a refugee to to Kenya living in a refugee camp to the election to the House of Representatives. I just wanted to start by asking you whether you might tell us about your early life and what impact it has on you still today.
0: Hmm.
3: I mean, early life uh, prior to Somalia... um, erupting into in a, a war zone, a civil war, was quite pleasant for me. You know, I, I grew up um, not needing much. I, I had a very loving family. Um, the Somalia I knew then was a very thriving country, at least to an eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I loved the school. Um, I was raised by educators and, you know, it, it was a very loving um, environment to grow up in. And then um, one morning we all woke up and nothing was the same. Um, everything that felt familiar, felt safe, um, felt joyful, felt happy was gone. And um, we ended up being forced out of Somalia and uh, went to go um, seek asylum in in Kenya and entered a refugee camp in Mombasa um, in a coastal city and lived there for four years. Um, Eventually got sponsorship um, to resettle Uh,
2: into the United States as refugees in 95. I suppose the the reason I asked the question partly uh, just occurs to me is that my, both of my parents, well, my father's no longer alive were refugees. Um, He left Belgium at the age of 16 as a a Jew fleeing from the Nazis. And my mum was in hiding during in Poland during the second world war. And, I mean, it's hard to tell these things because who knows what effect it has on me and my upbringing because I had a very stable family upbringing. But I definitely think it, you know, it had such effects on them, you know, even as they kind of grew up into a stable life in the UK. um, I mean, I... I, It never go. it never went away. I suppose it never really went away from them, I think.
3: It doesn't. um, You know, I think you're your Your sense of what is safe certainly shifts um, and you know for me, I mean it took me years to actually understand um, the these things tend to make me a little emotional. Um, But I I think for, for me, you know, you, you, there's a, there's a sense of home that, um, that you have when, when, you know, like my children have a sense of home. This is um, a space where they're comfortable in. And when you are forcefully displaced that That sense of home um is also displaced from you, and you are in constant search uh of of a home and and not just in the physical sense but in the emotional sense right you 're looking to 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 make yourself at home um, and you know I think for for me, it's it's probably um, you know one of one of the reasons I I am an organizer and I am involved in community and and um, a public servant is you know that that need to to connect with people to connect with my surrounding to connect with something that's that's bigger than me um, is it, is driven really by. By that search for, for you know, um, normalcy and for um, the ability to to ground yourself into something that can be real.
2: It's really interesting. You see, when I think about my father, he—everyone's experience is different. I always used to remember he didn't really like holidays very much <laughs> mm-hmm. because it gave him such a sense of sort of insecurity. Being he, he always used to say you know well it's okay to go away but it's so much nicer to be home um uh and i think it and i never quite understood it as a child and i think it's partly because that sense of displacement mm-hmm. never really leaves you somehow
3: yeah yeah i'm the same i don't like travel um any any chance i have at um at a time off, I, I would rather, you know, sit in front of the TV and just stay in one place. Um, and you know, I think the, the other thing is, is that, um, consistency is, is something, you know, that, that humans thrive on. Um, and when you, you have a breakage in, uh, um, in, in a life that, that you could you could have planned um, could have been planned for you, um, it it sort of pushes you to to to, to force your brain to be flexible. Uh, and for me, it is you know having anxieties around schedules and plans um, because I I know. You know, my, my older sisters talk about, you know, their, their plan for graduation and that never came. Their plans for, you know, what, what university they were going to go to that never came. Their plans for um, children and marriage that never came. And so I grew up sort of not really thinking about what tomorrow could be, but just hoping that I, I am alive to, to have a tomorrow. Um, and that, you know, is, is is some of the internal stuff that that we can, will probably forever work through as people who have been forcefully displaced.
2: Yeah, well, that's incredibly moving um, and striking. And and when you first came to the U.S., it's striking in your book. You said, I think, um, I think it was to your to your grandfather was it that you or your father that you came with. your father yeah beg your pardon uh you said this isn't our america this isn't the america i i know sorry i haven't got the exact phrase yeah you arrived in new york i think um
3: Yeah, yeah
2: just talk to us about that
3: well um you know, it, as as Americans, we do a really um, exceptional job at um, exporting American exceptionalism around the world. And, you know, when there were opportunities for us to get resettled outside of the, the refugee camp, my grandfather and father were really excited to come to the United States because it was a place of opportunity and prosperity, um, and, you know, as we got, went through that process of um, getting the documents that we needed to, to be able to resettle to the United States, one of the last activities that you are required to do as a refugee coming to the U S is to go through an orientation where, you know, you get acclimated um, and are presented what American life is. And that American life could not be farther from, you know, from, from the truth for, for probably 90% of Americans. Um, And when you're a kid, somebody tells you something, when adults tell you things, you believe them. Right. Um, And so when we arrived like the first few images were of um, homeless people sleeping on the side of the streets. There was graffiti. I mean, it was New York. And now I know why, why this exists, but there was also just, you know, trash and garbage on the side of the road um, because it was at night and that's, that's, you know, New York's deal um, in, in getting rid of their trash. But I I didn't know that, Um, and so to me, this was far. This couldn't be farther removed from you know the image that that I had of America. And I said, "Well, this doesn't look like the America you promised." And and you know, um, my father said, "You know, we're going to get to our America. You just wait." Because uh, I think even even him he he was taken aback and thought you know we're we're, we're still in transit we're gonna we're gonna get there and um, and I've I've continued to be in search of the creation of of the America um, that that I was first introduced to um, and I want that to exist for you know, the 90% of Americans who right now don't have um, their economic needs being met in order to live in that America.
2: And, I mean, one of the other things that's very moving about your book is you had a tough time of it as a kid, you know, coming uh, to resettle in America, didn't you? I mean, it was it was really, you, you really... You were tough you you had to no, you you had to be tough against some of the bullying and other things that you faced and and the sort of very very unfamiliar world you'd entered
3: yeah i mean I think that you know the saying what um what doesn't break you makes you stronger makes you stronger is probably uh very true for me i i didn't really um prepare myself or didn't have the ability to prepare myself for what awaited me. And it was, it was brutal, but um, you know, I'm, I'm built strong. So I, I made it, made it through. Um, And I feel like it sort of prepared me for life now in, in, in American politics, because there are a lot of bullies that, uh, that need to be stood up to
2: definitely and we'll come on to that and and the journey then takes you initially into the eventually into the state legislature in 2016 and then to congress in 2018 what persuaded you what drove you to into into politics itself do you think
3: initially um i was drawn to to politics because i was interested in helping my grandfather and other elders in the community access a democracy that was never accessible for them um, prior to coming to the United States and eventually you know I as I worked um, and and got older and understood the in inequities um, I, I was baffled by uh, people's, Inability really to understand uh, how powerful they can be if they got involved. Because for me, there was a connection between the policies that were holding people back um, and the politicians they were electing or, um, or choosing uh, to, to elect by not voting or participating. And, you know, I, had representation myself at the time um, that was not really actively working to create progress for for our community and for the district that I lived in. And she was there for over 40 years. And eventually I myself ended up challenging her and won that primary to unseat a 44 year incumbent. Um, And for for us, it was really about figuring out how we can get people to get excited about a, about representation in a representative democracy. Um, what changes could you have in the creation of policy and debate and shifting the narrative about why disparities continue to persist in our communities? If you elected people who actually had fluency in the day to day struggles of a particular community,
2: and you, Alexandra Castillo Cortez, Rashida Tlaib and Ayana Presley, are part of the so called squad, do you think there is something distinctive about your approach about about the squad and what you are bringing to politics? I think it was sort of implicit in the answer you just you just gave, but I mean, it's it's sort of shaking up the system and being willing to think. Not think willing, you know, willing to think not we've done this this way forever, and so we're going to carry on doing it this way, I guess.
3: I mean, for us, we our lives have acutely been impacted by policies that that were made with without us (laughs) um, at the table, right? Without our interests at the table, without our voices at the table, without our needs. and hopes and aspirations at the table, and and I don't mean us individually. I mean like us as in the communities we represent. And so when when we are now given the honor and the privilege um, to to represent ourselves and our communities, we we know we don't have the luxury to wait. We don't have the luxury to. Um, to only think about incremental changes, we don't have the luxury to 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 not have right righteous anger um, in wanting this system to work for all of us, and to to a lot of our you know colleagues, um, the the idea of going hungry, you know, being a renter, not having health insurance. Um, all of those things are abstract ideas to them. This is what their constituents might talk to them. this is this is not their their lived experience now or hasn't been for probably a decade or two. And for us, you know, this is probably the the, the most secure paycheck we've we've had. And so that is urgent um, and constant part of the work that we do because we know um, as we sit uh, and debate, there are people um, like we would have been who, who are struggling to pay their rent, who are struggling to put food on the table, who are struggling to find a nice school for their children to go to, who are struggling to, you know, come up with even like the, the, change it takes for you to get on a, on a bus or a train. Um, and I, I know that the majority of my colleagues who are millionaires haven't thought about that in a long time. Um, but it was just yesterday that I was thinking about that. And so I want to, to have these changes be talked about. And I want these policies implemented because I know people don't have the luxury of waiting.
1: You talk about this, uh, this, this toughening up, this thickening of your skin in your early experiences of being an American, preparing you for the, the, the you know, the bullying within politics. Um, if we, we talk about President Trump, when, when he attacks you, as he did for not being born in America, is, is that water off a duck's back to you?
3: yeah i mean it it is it's it's become important for me to to respond and and remind him you know what an American is and who is um an American because there there are a lot of people who not only identify with me as, as a member of Congress, but identify with me as a new immigrant in this country, as a refugee, you know, as Muslim, um, as a woman. And so for, for us to, to take him on, um, it's, it's an, it's an important part of, of this work of representation because, you know, when he's attacking me and, and he solely only does it, it, because of my identities right he's never he's never said anything about my policy my intelligence you know my ability to represent my constituents a single policy that i advocate for that he's against so so we you know we're not adversaries in in a, a in, in a political debate um we are adversaries in an understanding of what it means to be american and who has um, the, the, the right to access you know, constitutional rights in, in this country. He presents himself as this strong um, bully who is going to put people in their places, who is going to um, be between them and everyone else who's out there to harm them. And uh, and he has decided to say that Muslims are coming to get you, immigrants are coming to get you, refugees are coming to get you, Black people are coming to get you. Um, and he can't continue to say that if he hasn't had the ability to, right, like to take down the one person who sort of has um, all of those identities uh, Still in power and is still in, in Congress, um, and so I think that that piece uh, is is really what what drives him and why he continues to say, um, you know, it's because of Ilhan I'm going to win a particular district because he knows it's because of me that he lost Minnesota uh, in 2016 and it's going to be because of me that he will lose Minnesota in 2020.
1: How do you, how do you think we put that hate back in? You know the the divisions that he's exploited. Um, it's easy to feel very pessimistic about the 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 long term effects of that. How do we put it back in its box? How do we defeat it?
3: Oh, that's. I mean, I I, I would be rich if I had the answer to that. <laughs> um, but you know, I've I've experienced. Um, the bad, ugly, and good in in my life, um, and I know that monsters can be created overnight. And I also know um, that people of goodwill can work together to um, to overpower that monster or these monsters. And, um, and I think, you know, it's going to take all of us to start the work of cleansing hearts. Um, once this election is over, uh, and we have put away the main monster, people are not born to hate. Um, and I know, uh, that this is something that is learned um, and something that people are exposed to. Um, and that gives me hope because I know then the opposite can be done. They can unlearn um, and they can be exposed to compassion and, um, and, and be tolerant and accepting um, and, and, uh, and be goodwilled.
1: Something we wanted to ask you about is is you represent the district where George Floyd was killed earlier this year and you've been in office during this incredibly difficult period for you your district and the United States as a whole how how's how's it been and and how's your community doing
3: in Minneapolis is is quite resilient um, and so we you know we have uh been in in the process of picking up the pieces and um, and figuring out not only how to hold the space for for one another, but what rebuilding looks like um, and what we imagining our um, our safety and um, our progress uh, should should be. And you know, people have been more honest about what kind of community they want to live in um, and the progress they want us to make and, and how much they are tired of the hashtags and, you know, and the, the Black Lives Matter slogans um, when they are not seeing people legislate um, in a way that makes them believe they, they understand <laughs> um, and care for Black lives. And I'm excited really for where we can go um, together as as a community um, once we figure out what public safety should look like for for us and what real investment um, in, in the needs of the community are.
2: I'm interested, just as we come towards the end, you've been in Congress two years. I wonder if this is a fair question, how you think you've, what you've learned over these last two years as a as a representative in congress i mean you know it's been a it must have been a roller coaster ride you've been a target for president trump um uh you've been honest enough to say you got some things wrong some remarks you made about israel and so on but but what what have you learned most of all i guess
3: I mean, what what I've learned is that there there is an opportunity um, with every challenge, and uh, and you're willing if you're willing to to see the opportunities. Um, I think you know that's that's important right now, even in, in the context of, of what people are experiencing with the movements that are happening, or um, or even with the presidential election. You know, we we oftentimes. As humans, allow for for ourselves to to be in despair um, because there are severe challenges, uh, and and I think what these moments have taught us, what the last four years have taught us, is that there is um, great opportunities out there uh, for us to to reshape um, our our society, for us to advocate for policies that people were not before um and for us to to lead in in ways that are not traditional um, and so that is i will say has been the the greatest lesson of of my last two years
2: and the title of this podcast is reasons to be cheerful so as we close give us a reason to be i mean you've given us a many reasons to be cheerful in this interview i think but give us a reason to be cheerful <laughs>
3: uh in in 5 days uh in in Minnesota more people have already voted than they than um in the last primary. So wow. that that this morning I woke up to that and that has made me um very cheerful.
2: Well look Congresswoman Omar it's been a real pleasure to speak to you uh your your book this is what america looks like is definitely worth our listeners reading. We wish you all the best of luck and uh, keep blazing the trail you've been blazing.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: Well, to give us even further cause for optimism from United States politics, we're going to talk to Will Lawrence, who is co-founder and director of partnerships at the Sunrise Movement, which has grown to be one of the most influential climate advocacy groups in the United States. There are hubs in over 250 cities, there are thousands of volunteers across the country. And Will, you were there at the beginning. T- t- tell us about you. Tell us about how it started and tell us about what the idea is. Uh, thanks so
4: much Jeff, for having me. So Sunrise was born out of the youth climate movement in the United States. Uh, I'm here in Lansing, Michigan and um, had been involved for several years. Um, but uh, in the middle of uh, the last decade, um uh a couple of my uh friends and i we felt that the work that uh had been happening was kind of running the reaching the end of its road if you will, and we started looking around asking how we could um take the next step and um put our heads together, actually did uh, a year of strategic planning um, with 12 folks, um, really going deep into understanding American politics, social movements, and uh, eventually launched Sunrise in uh, the spring of 2017.
1: And, and what, what were the founding ideas of Sunrise?
4: Well, uh, folks before us had done an incredible job of building a social movement around climate change in the United States. Uh, and uh, But we found that, especially by 2016, we were seeing new opportunities in the political arena, and the climate movement wasn't taking those opportunities. There was kind of this idea that you have protest movements, advocacy groups over here, and you have electoral campaigns and politicians over here, and never the two shall meet, right? (laughs) Either you try to get people elected or you protest them, and you would never do both. But we saw the rise of Bernie Sanders uh, in late 2015, early 2016, and saw so many people in the climate movement get inspired by him. And yet the institutions we had in the climate movement were not prepared to uh, take advantage of that excitement. And so that was one major thing we wanted to build on was to bring the power that the movement had built in years prior into the political arena and then use that combat in the political arena to strengthen our movements on the outside
1: so so the 12 of you you lock yourselves away for a year you're like cardinals choosing a new pope you you, you come out what what is the what is the what is the strategy jay how do you go about this 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 process of um selecting candidates who are, are passionate about these issues
4: well, this is an interesting moment, you know, because we were literally, you know, we had some relationships and some experience, but we were literally, you know, twelve people uh, at the beginning, and um, all we had was a plan, and 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 the plan was our, our mission statement is to stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process. That's the big goal. We said we're going to do it in four steps. Year one, we're going to build the movement uh, through doing small actions. Year two, we are going to make climate change matter in the 2018 midterm election. Year three, we are going to create an inescapable moral crisis around the fact of climate change and the opportunity to create millions of good jobs tackling it. And year four, we're going to rally to get rid of Donald Trump. So we had that four-step plan kind of laid out at the beginning. And um, we've been kind of filling in the details and having to work with it since then because I can't claim to have anticipated the coronavirus or uh, a number of other things that have happened since then. That was kind of how we laid it out.
1: And on the subject of the election... Obviously, the, the the most visible aspect of that is the Biden presidency. And, and to, to some extent, he is visible as this quite centrist candidate. He's got the job of winning over these floating voters and, and perhaps people who supported Trump in 2016. It seems a little bit like he's trying to keep the, the, the Green New Deal at arm's length in all this. Where, where, where are these ideas within the Democratic Party more generally?
4: Well, the Democratic Party establishment is clearly running from the Green New Deal brand, but they have adopted Green New Deal style policies into their platform. We're talking about massive investments in job creation, doing things like retrofitting Every building in the United States to be more sustainable, delivering clean water to every citizen in this country, every person in this country by overhauling our water infrastructure, uh, by building out uh, accessible mass transit, all these things creating millions and millions of jobs, putting people back to work, not to mention uh, other jobs in the green economy like caring for people nursing jobs, teaching jobs, you know, these are not the traditional hard hat jobs that you think about, um, but they are green jobs that are a part of a sustainable society. So that's what the Green New Deal is about. And that's actually what Joe Biden is talking about in his platform. And talking about doing that, by the way, uh, in a way that is also deeply addressing the uh, crisis of racial injustice that we have in our country by allocating 40% of every dollar invested to communities that have been historically marginalized or disinvested, especially communities of color, black communities, indigenous communities, and others. And um, so that's all in Joe Biden's platform. And those are the ideas that were popularized through the conversation around the Green New Deal. Now, clearly, we would prefer for them to be championing the, the Green New Deal in name rather than just in concept. But um, frankly, we'll take it, um, given where we are. Uh, Joe Biden wasn't our chosen candidate, but he is the one that we've got. And it's clear that we all have to rally to defeat Donald Trump. And then we really do believe that we can get started on a Green New Deal in 2021, um, should the Democrats win.
2: Now, Will, you mentioned that part of your strategy was around candidates and the 2018 election. And and we've just come off the back of an interview with Ilhan Omar, Alexandra Casio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, that small number of really leading voices have really played an important role, haven't they, in, in pushing this this movement forward?
4: Sunrise's theory of change has three main pillars. One is that we're going to build people power in the streets. Two is that we're going to build political power to uh, deliver champions to office and have them fight for us. And three is that we're going to align with other movements who are working towards similar aims. And that point, too, that we'd have political champions when we released this in 2017, purely conceptual. There was not a single person who we could call a champion on climate change in the United States Congress. Maybe Bernie Sanders. Maybe that would be the one. But the idea that you could have a social movement aligned with an elected official who would not only fight for you in the halls of Congress, but would actually do things that help the movement grow on the outside in the process, that was totally imaginary. And then in 2018, Um, We endorsed AOC. We can't claim to have done, in fairness, very much at all to get her elected (laughs) because we were still very small at that point. Um, But some of our friends did a lot of work. Um, And and then one week after Election Day in November 2018, she uh, joined us in sitting in at Nancy Pelosi's office, who's the Speaker of the House, in demanding a Green New Deal And Since then, AOC has just been such a tremendous champion for the Green New Deal and has consistently not just championed the Green New Deal, but championed Sunrise Movement, championed our movement allies, and has really demonstrated in every way what it means to be a movement politician, someone who does not lose their connection to the grassroots and to the movement when they get elected, but continues working in alliance as part of a coordinated strategy to get this done together. And AOC isn't the only one either. Of course, we have Ilhan Omar, we have other members of the squad, and they've been tremendous examples of what it means to be a champion. So I can't say enough good things about AOC and Ilhan and the rest of them. Uh, and it, we're going to have a lot of opportunities in years to come because of the work that they're doing.
2: Talk to us about the role of Sunrise in the election. Talk to us about your mobilization uh, of young people. What, what, are you, what are you up to in this, in this crucial moment? Because you've already said it in answer to Jeff that you, know, you think it's incredibly important that Joe Biden gets elected.
4: We had to reorient our, our plans due to the coronavirus, um, but even in, even in spite of that, we've been able to contact millions of young voters throughout the primary and general election cycle. I think one good example of that is uh, Jamal Bowman, who is a newly elected representative from uh, from New York State, who's going to join the squad proudly alongside Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others, made a, a 1.3 million phone calls in his campaign And Sunrise Movement made 850,000 of those phone calls. And I've just got to give so much love to our phone banking team. They're called the Force to Be Reckoned With team, and they really are. Um, It's run largely by high schoolers um, and other teenagers, uh, and they have an incredible culture that they've built. They've really built community, online community in the midst of the coronavirus with people who come back. Day after day after day, phone banking and supporting each other and doing that in the midst of this coronavirus where we're all locked up inside. And um, that's really been the engine of our work. We also have a swing state program in key states here um, for the general election where we're uh, you know doing sp- special work there as well, including planning to uh, defend the results should Trump try to steal the election after he loses. So uh, it's been an interesting year. And, uh, you know, our our voter contact team has just been incredibly creative and resourceful, uh, because obviously, the virus has upended everything, but we're putting uh, everything we got in the direction of defeating Trump.
2: And obviously, all of the focus at the moment is on defeating Trump, not just, uh, and it's not just obviously important for the US, it's, it's absolutely crucial for the world. Talk to us if, and I know it's an if and nothing can be taken for granted, if Joe Biden wins, how do you see the question from January of next year when he'll be sworn in, how do you see this issue of the Green New Deal kind of unfolding, given that you've got a degree of, you know, you've said he wasn't your candidate, although you're obviously fully supportive of him him beating Trump. How do you see that um, that process unfolding so that you can get the the kind of maximal – set of demands that you have.
4: Right away in the first 100 days or first 45 days, he's going to want to do a big stimulus plan (laughs) because the economy is in tatters. Uh, The Trump and GOP response this year has been utterly inadequate. And uh, so one of the first priorities that the Biden campaign has said, and common sense dictates that they're going to want to do a big investment package right away in order to get the economy going. And we've been saying that climate change is a jobs program. It's a job creating issue. Joe Biden understands that. He really gets it, actually. Uh, We're fortunate for that. And so we are strongly hoping and we are going to push like hell to make sure that his initial investment stimulus plan that he enacts within the first 100 days Includes massive spending on renewable energy, massive spending on water infrastructure, all those other priorities I talked about earlier. That is the first opportunity to get going.
2: The, the name of this uh, podcast, Will, is uh, Reasons to be Cheerful. I think you've given us uh, bucket loads of them uh, so far, but you've, you've obviously been at this now for a number of years. Do you feel a sense of, of possibility as well as an awareness of the massive risks and dangers we face?
4: I do feel a sense of, of possibility. <laughs> And hopefulness. I do. And what makes me hopeful is I think we have a resurgence of visionary, progressive activist energy and organization, not just in the United States, but in other countries around the world. And we are learning and relearning from our ancestors the craft of what it means to build power and the art of what it means to govern a society and organize ourselves well. And I am hopeful that there are some deeply empathetic and compassionate people who are gaining more and more power to organize our societies in more and more humane and caring ways. Well, look, uh, Will
2: Lawrence, I think after this conversation, every country needs a sunrise movement. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jeff. Really appreciate it. So what did you
1: think of those two really interesting conversations? I found found them both incredibly inspiring. Obviously, Ilhan is this major figure. But in, in, in both conversations, the sense that I got is when you think about the upcoming presidential election, it can feel like Joe Biden is a bit of an uninspiring candidate, that he's... Sort of middle of the road enough not to upset the horses and to beat Trump. But it's, it's difficult to get excited by Joe Biden. But what I took away from both conversations is that the Democratic Party and what will hopefully prove to be his agenda is, is being shaped by the likes of the squad and, and Sunrise. And that's really exciting that those ideas, the things we talk about on this podcast, could help shape American politics over the next presidential term. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I I found
2: the conversation with Ilhan, well, both of them, but the, the conversation with Ilhan starting with that, incredibly interesting. I mean, I suppose I feel for her, you know, that Trump's awful attacks on people are awful for anybody. But I think the whole you're not really American stuff is so, you know, for somebody who's a refugee... It must be just incredibly difficult for her. And then I think you're right about, I think this movement, I, I think the outsize effect of AOC, Yilhan and others is really interesting in, in moving the centre of gravity. Obviously, Bernie Sanders and his primary campaign and all that. Um, but then just the sort of, the, 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 the movement itself and, what, and the effects the movement has had. I mean, I just... I think that's what's also interesting about Will is that, you know, you think of the Sunrise movement as about young people who are like protesting, but it's 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 very methodical. Yeah, it's so strategic. It's very strategic, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's it's not like a sort of you know flash mob. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it's yeah. a really wealth. You know, they've obviously really thought hard about how do we get influence how do we organize i think that's such an interesting sort of lesson that there's real strategy to it and it does seem like it's 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 shifting the terms of of debate and let's just you know we just have to hope hope like hell that that biden wins
1: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, as ever, we would love to hear from you. Did you feel similarly inspired by uh, hearing uh, about what's going on over in the States when you know we look over there and so much of what we see is bleak? Let us know what you thought. Also, if you've got ideas for future episodes, thoughts on previous episodes, ideas for guests and so on, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us through the website cheerfulpodcast.com. Now, Ed. Jeff. We have an email here from Jonathan Rushforth. Who says meritocracy and Ed's shortcut to the top. Mm. Says You didn't tell me you didn't <laughs> tell me about this one. Firstly, he says, I really, really enjoy the podcast. It's relaxing. Excellent. It's relaxing. That's good to hear. And informative. Excellent. Well, should we just leave it there then? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. He says when I was at the Treasury yes. as a senior policy advisor, yes. another man my age had leapfrogged me and was on the Council of Economic Advisers, effectively influencing people many levels above me, having presumably been a researcher for Labour and Gordon Brown. When discuss- discussing the problems with meritocracy last week, uh, you might also flag that most appointments of special advisors aren't even merit- uh, meritocratic, let alone fair. One idea for future podcasts could be to- how to fix democracy as many elements of present models Look far from democratic. I'm left speechless. Well, he also adds... You Go on. As if that's not bad enough, yeah? Google Jeff from Dynasty if you want to see Ed's haircut from 2002, which I did. Yeah. And I will say it's quite similar to your present-day haircut. Let's just have a look. I'm just going to have a look.
2: Um, let me just have a look now. Uh, Jeff, Dynasty, 2002. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's sort of, it's kind of John Kerry-ish, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't think my haircut has changed very much. I think that's a fair point. Uh, as for the rest of it, I think, um, I think we'll move on.
0: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Well, we're in the outro. Yep, we're in the outro. I'm off. Um, well, I hope hopefully we're doing some swimming, uh, more swimming at the weekend. Um, You're like an otter. Ah, oh, is that a compliment? It's not an insult. Um, in fact, actually, I was at a swimming pool the other day um, uh, near where I live in London, and uh, in the
1: in the municipal baths.
2: Yeah, and then I sort of got out of the swimming pool, and uh, a lady was very exercised about climate change, which I am too. Um, and as I was sort of walking around in my kind of swimming costume in the one way system, she she sort of said, "Could could she nobble me?" And and I don't know, I I don't think I was at my best having
1: a conversation while dripping drip dripping wet you don't want to be nobbled while you're dripping wet in your speedos you've got your veruca sock on it's you don't there's there's a time and a place i did think it's a sort of funny life being a politician isn't it you sort of you
2: know you get nobbled at the most unlikely moments and also i don't quite know why i didn't say when she said can i nobble you i should have just said no (laughs) but i'm so sort of polite i was like oh yes uh and i you know i as i say i don't think i was sort of I don't think I was quite at my most sort of—I don't know what the wor- right word is, but sort of Wait, cogent, nobleable,
1: nobleable. Exactly. I'm not sure that the word noble has been used as much this century as it has in the last two minutes of this podcast. Is noble a retro word? I think so. Did she use the word noble, or are you edifying it? No, I think she said noble. Okay, speaking your language. What's the modern? La- what's the modern version of noble? Badger no
2: do i look like a badger right should we do our thank yous yeah i would like to thank very much
1: ilhan omar and will lawrence emma caution produces our podcast joel pierce provides all the research with backup from zoe gelber who's been with us this week in person yours. backup yeah. i'll have you know yeah, she's been the invigilator Sitting the there. The invigilator. Observing. Uh, and Fanula DC and Joe Kenyon, of course, work with Joel. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music James Deacon made. The eye-dense and the artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Star Helper. He's been The Milk Monitor. And these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful. Mm-hmm.